My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for uh, coming. I hope I get a chance to meet all of you. So if this is your first time here, please don't be afraid. I'm, I'm really not as uh, important or impressive as you think. I mean, I know standing up here in all my middle-aged glory, you might think that I'm some, you know, uh, extremely skilled orator. Uh, I'm just a simple guy like you, and well, unless you're a girl, and then but I would love just a chance to get to know you um, and make a new friend. So please, come up front and let's talk. Uh, when people challenge someone else or a group of people, you'll often hear the phrase, throw down the gauntlet or run the gauntlet. Does anybody know where that comes from? Oh, I knew Jordan would know. His whole family, they're soldiers all the way back to literally pre-Civil War, right? Seriously. So, I mean, he knows anything military. He knows everything military. Uh, but yeah, so it was a challenge in medieval times. Knights would throw down this heavily armored glove to challenge someone's honor or to challenge an opponent. Today, it might be used before a major bout, say boxing. Who watches boxing in here? Every true Christian watches boxing, and here's why. The problem is standing right in front of you. There's a reason why Paul uses the analogy. It ministers to your soul to watch a good boxing match. Uh, no, but it, uh, when just last weekend, Tyson Fury threw down the gauntlet when he challenged Deontay Wilder to a rematch and won. Uh, many of you have run the gauntlet by completing a bachelor's or master's degree. You had to face a lot of adversity and you prevailed. Uh, some of you have thrown down the gauntlet in a conflict with a friend or in a romantic relationship where you've had to erect a boundary and say, look, you need to either shape up or ship out because you're not healthy for me. Uh, but the most important gauntlet is far more important than the ones we've already described. It's the spiritual battle, the gauntlet that both the enemy of our souls, Satan, and God throws at our feet. We discussed it at length over the last several weeks, and we finish our series on spiritual warfare tonight. Um, the first week, we discussed the nature of the battle, namely that uh, the enemy presents the bait but hides the hook. So he shows us something shiny to entice us and then beats us over the head with it. And then last week, we talked about the importance of repentance, that God uses repentance to bring us to himself as, as, as a grace and to give us life. And the enemy tries to target strategically. We talked about some of the strategic ways in which he targets repentance to keep us from pursuing it. Um, but tonight, the gauntlet we must run is one between the enemy's attempt to lock us into what I'm calling an ownership cage. That is, the enemy of our souls wants us to think that we own our lives, our relationships, our money, and all of our other resources. And God says, no, I want you to be a steward, not an owner. That's a key component in the spiritual battle. And we see this from the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created to be an uninterrupted, perfect fellowship with God. And God gave them the Garden of Eden, paradise. And he said, you can eat from any of these trees, but you can use these trees how you see fit. But the, there was one tree right in the middle that they were forbidden to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why would God do this? 
Why would he say, okay, you can crack open any fridge. You know, that was the precursor to the fridge, to the crock pot. It were these this fruit trees, and I'm sure the fruit was absolutely amazing. You can crack open any of these fridges, but you can't, you cannot eat from this one tree. I mean, that's like saying you can go to restaurant row in the short north and go to any restaurant you want except North Star. It's like, why just have one restaurant that you're not allowed to eat from? You know what? Is God holding out on Adam and Eve? Is he withholding? No, he wasn't. That was for their good. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to tell Adam and Eve, to remind them every time they passed it, that you don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. You belong to me. You don't know what I know. You can't be everywhere I can be. You don't have the power I have. And this is to remind you that you're living in my house. We see in Psalm 24, verses 1 through 4, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So the beautiful work of creation that God has given us, all the way to the highest mountains, to the deepest drop of water in the oceans, and every molecule in the universe has been made by God, and it belongs to him. And according to this passage, how do we interact or have fellowship with this mighty God? How do we do it? Well, it says in verse 4, the only way is through possessing a pure heart and to not have any idols, to not have anything we place on the throne of our lives other than God. The problem is that Adam and Eve and all of us have placed self and many other gods on, our, on the throne. We've become outlaws in God's kingdom. And what happens to outlaws who commit a capital offense? It's the death sentence, right? And so it is with God. Because we're outlaws in his kingdom, the sentence is eternal separation from God, eternal death. Blessing can only come through being a kingdom citizen. But we're all disqualified. None of us can be uh, a citizen of God's kingdom Jesus commands wholehearted devotion in Matthew 6, 33. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So God's peace amidst life's worries, power to overcome strongholds and all the rest are only found when we become citizens of God's kingdom, but none of us qualify. We all have gone our own way and we look for our own our own sense of righteousness. We find worth and value in other things, and we seek a life of comfort and ease. We, th- we see through Scripture in our own lives and in history that as outlaws, we haven't made the kingdom of God our primary concern. It's not his glory. It's not his plan to redeem a broken people in a broken world that's burning on our hearts. It's our own agenda and our own lives God calls for all of it, all of our lives, all of our thoughts, all of our resources, everything, because it belongs to him. He's the owner, and we're simply stewards. 
that he's entrusted for a short period of time with his property, and all of us have broken that covenant, that law of stewardship. You see, every kingdom has a covenant in its country to help keep it organized and to help give it, keep it secure and to provide prosperity and provision for the people. The United States, for instance, has the Constitution, and it protects our, uh, our freedom and right to pursue happiness. The kingdom of God has this principle of stewardship, and it all belongs to him. That's the principle of stewardship. It all belongs to him. So it makes sense that the enemy and his fallen angels would ruthlessly attack this, this sense of entitlement we have to be owners instead of stewards. And because God requires full obedience and none of us have fully obeyed, none of us are naturally stewards, we try to be owners, God sent his son, who Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, speaking of Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus made us kingdom citizens. Just as someone can come to this country and marry a U.S. citizen, and just by that marriage commitment, that marriage vow, over time they go through uh, various steps to become U.S. citizens. It's not because of who they are, it's because of who they know. And so it is with Christ. He makes us kingdom citizens, and nothing and no one can ever take that away. All we deserve is God's wrath. We're not worthy of such an honor, but Jesus, according to this verse, vouched for us and made us like himself. More than that, made us one with himself. But just as Adam and Eve were, and uh, all, we, all the personalities we read about in Scripture, we're constantly tempted to turn back and, and become outlaws, live the life of an outlaw. So in every person who calls Jesus their king, we find this same temptation. We often want to treat God like a spare tire. Hence the tire. Okay, come on, guys, be impressed. This thing was hard to get. I almost got hit by a car getting this across the street. I parked on the other side of the street because I'm not allowed to park in the parking lot because of you parents <laughs> with little kids, and I want to honor that. So I was sweating like crazy getting this dirty old thing into the church. Uh, we have to make sure the kids don't play with this afterwards, parents, by the way. They will get absolutely filthy. That thing's nasty. But we want to treat God like a spare tire. And that's our first picture, illustration that we're going to use tonight to paint this picture, this gauntlet that we find ourselves in between this battle between living as owners or living as stewards. And that is spare tire Jesus. Go to him in a jam, then keep on rolling on our own when things settle down. It's tempting, isn't it? We want to get into that program at school so badly that we're praying like crazy. We're going to home group. We're going to church. And then we get that acceptance letter that says, congratulations. And all of a sudden, we don't see you in worship on Sunday night. We don't see you in home group. Uh, I think we all have a tendency to go right back living our lives on our own terms, throwing the spare tire back into the trunk. We say yes to a life of ownership and no to a life of stewardship. We breathe his air, we use his skills, we enjoy the relationships that he brought into our lives, we spend, uh, we spend his money, and then we're perplexed by our lack of spiritual growth. We're confused as to why our prayers seem dry, our sin struggles seem immovable, our ministry is non-existent or stuck. 
We wonder why he's not added all these things unto us, and it's because we haven't sought first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the spare tire doesn't come out very often for many of us, does it? Because we live in the most affluent culture that's ever existed. I mean, it's easy for me to just find comfort from a screen instead of Jesus. I can put the spare tire back in the trunk after the rare time in which it's needed and then keep on rolling. After the grief stops, the struggle subsides, after the challenge cools, then I can go right back to being on the throne of my own life. But fortunately, God has a process. He has a path for us to avoid putting the spare tire back into the trunk and having simply a crisis relationship with Jesus and to move into having a day-in, day-out love relationship with him. A way in which he keeps us dependent on him, which is the better way, so that we can pray like the psalmist with confidence. In Psalm 119, verse 36, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Over the uh, last several weeks, I've been memorizing a section in Psalm 119, including these verses, because I want the Lord, and I, I noticed in here, and if you read Psalm 19, it's about him turning us. He turns my eyes away from worthless things. I can't turn them on my own. He directs my paths, it says in another verse. He's the one who's doing the heavy lifting, and I'm simply submitting to him. And I know most of you are here tonight as well for that better life, that you want more. You don't want to go to Jesus just in a crisis. You want a deeper walk with him. That's what the enemy wants. That's part of the battle is he wants us to have a spare tire Jesus where we go to him just when our back's against the wall. He'll pull us from the path of ownership and places us on the path of stewardship if we'll just ask. And the first part of the process, the path, so to speak, that the Lord leads us down towards stewardship is he empties us that he might fill us. He empties us that he might fill us. Not like fill us being a name. Fill us, two words. So he fills us. It's another illustration that I'm quite proud of, but not as proud of as, as I am of the spare tire. Um, he does this often. Just look at the story of the widow in 1 Kings. God tells the prophet Elijah to go to her city where he would encounter a certain widow who is suffering through famine along with her son because of a drought. Back then, there was no way for a widow to make money in her destitute situation. So he comes to the gate of this city, and he finds her gathering sticks. He asks for some water and bread, and this is how she responds. 1 Kings 17, verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we might eat and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So the precious widow, she had a tough choice here. On one hand, she could enjoy her last meal. 
or she could use the last sustenance that she had for her and her family and give it to this stranger, this man who was claiming to be uh, a servant of God, who says God will provide for her. I mean, it certainly didn't make logical sense, did it? I could see Elijah telling her maybe, hey, make this bread, give it to a neighbor, and maybe that'll give you favor through this famine. They'll be so impressed that you gave him the gift of food that maybe they'll provide for you. But no, he says, take all that you have and empty it. Empty everything you have for God. All or nothing. And here's what happens, picking up where we left off. In verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This woman had to empty herself to be filled. Why? Why does God require us to be empty in order to fill us? All of us want revival, but we don't want to be emptied. All of us want an intimate relationship with the Lord, but we're stuffed full. And you know what happens when we get stuffed, don't you? What happens when you have a Thanksgiving dinner? What do you want to do right after? Sleep. Right? You want to sleep. You've just eaten way too much and committed the sin of gluttony along with probably most other Americans, and now you want to sit down, watch the football game or whatever, and take a nap because you're full. And some of us are so full of ourselves that there's no room for God. Some of us are so full of ourselves, there's no time to gather with the saints regularly on Sunday nights and home group. There's no room to serve others in the church or the children's ministry or hospitality. There's no room to share Christ with the coworker because we're too full. There's no room to heal from discouragement. There's no room to heal from insecurity. There's no room to heal from body image issues. There's no room to heal from a porn addiction because we're too full. There's things in our life that we're simply not willing to give up. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to hurt bad when we give up these things for Jesus. You think it was easy for this woman? Guys, it's supposed to feel impossible. I don't know why I'm so often discouraged when I ask God to use me to do something hard and then challenges come out of it. Well, God, I know you asked me to do something hard, but I want it to be easy. <laughs> and that's not the way it works. This faith thing is supposed to feel impossible. I mean, man, otherwise, if we're not going out on a limb, then it's not grace. We'll never experience grace if we don't get out there and empty ourselves. And I tell you what, when we empty ourselves, you know what? I've never met another human being who's regretted emptying themselves for Jesus Christ. I've met many who've regretted staying full, myself included. So our last picture uh, is very similar to the empty pitcher, uh, and it's yet another step along the path to obedience that God uses through this gauntlet, this spiritual battle between ownership and stewardship. So, Brandon, could you kill the lights, my friend? Can everyone say, ooh, there we go. Man, you, 
Now you guys are just sounding weird. You're starting to freak me out a little bit. All right. Oh, it's so pretty, isn't it? Well, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Somebody make a big motion around this thing. Okay, you can turn the light back on, Brandon. This thing's just gonna make me mad. Okay, well, this is a motion detection light, or it's supposed to be, but it's really just a cheap piece of junk from Amazon. Uh, well, it's all right. Uh, you guys get the, it's actually funnier that it didn't work. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I'm not gonna say anything about that. You can say that because you're Chinese, but I can't say that. Uh, that's Daniel, good friend, great guy. Um, so you use a motion detection light to illuminate a dark space that would otherwise be dangerous, right? You don't want to use this one because you'll fall to your death. But, but uh doesn't even stand up. I will end you. Uh, but uh, Melody uses little motion detection lights along the steps in the back there so that the kids don't fall on the way to the bathroom. I hit my head in my... I have an attic bedroom, and I hit my head on... It's like shaped kind of quirky like this. And I hit my head on the wall probably for the first year of living there. I mean, just like so hard, I was afraid that there'd be hair left on the wall in the morning, you know? And so I could, I could have used one of, not that light, but the lights back there. Uh, this kind of special light doesn't turn on unless you're moving. So you could take classes to learn the principles of electricity, and you could learn the methods used to create motion tech detection technology, uh, but that knowledge will not turn on the light. You could become an electrical engineer, and still, that light is no more likely to turn on for you than it would a box of rocks. The light goes on when you move. It's that simple. But often we think to ourselves, I can handle the worship thing, and maybe I can even handle going to home group, and if I check off those boxes, isn't that enough? If I just do the stuff that's going to keep me in good graces with other believers and make my life look together, isn't that enough to experience the presence of God? And we see from Genesis to Revelation, God honors motion. He honors stepping out. It could be stepping out to pursue healing in your life. It could be stepping out to uh, engaging more fully in prayer, coming to prayer on Sunday night at five. It, it could be saying, man, I, I'm gonna start serving the people in my office and every week I'm bringing somebody home to be around my family for dinner. Uh, it could be it stepping out in a different way that God's calling you to. It could be deciding, you know, I, I wanna learn how to study and read the Bible. I'm gonna start coming to the Equip series so I can learn more about who God is and what he wants for my life. Some even go so far as uh, uh, Christians getting advanced masters and PhD degrees in theology and Bible, and they mistake that even for obedience. You know, I went to Bible school, I went to college, and uh, uh, I met so many people there who thought that just by getting a degree in theology or Bible, somehow that was enough. Certainly God's got to be happy with me now, but their hearts were so far from God 
This kind of thinking and behavior is loved by the enemy of our souls because it's a more veiled way of tempting us to go along driving with the spare tire in the trunk. It's the ownership and not the stewardship life. Sure, it wants Jesus in crisis, but it moves right back to these means that we use to try to feel like we're in control. Lord, I'm doing all this stuff. Isn't that enough? I mean, right knowledge is necessary to say the least. We're investing a ton of time and effort in things like the Equip series, teaching on Sunday nights, home groups where you're doing Bible study and all of those kind of things. Right knowledge is more critical now than it's ever been. I'm not knocking learning, but it won't turn the light of God's presence on in our life alone because knowledge must be paired with motion. Stepping out in uncomfortable places that would otherwise be terrifying if it weren't for the presence of God. God blesses and shows us the grace of the resurrected life when we're in motion. To never step out is to live as if grace isn't necessary. Just look at Moses when he uh, was called by God to free his people from Egyptian oppression. He's got his back against the wall with his people. His back towards the Red Sea and his face towards the Egyptian army that's about to crush them. And we pick up in Exodus 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves for Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Like the widow we read about earlier in 1 Kings, the Israelites are stuck between a rock and a hard place here. And they're saying, Moses, are you crazy? We've already suffered so much and you've led us out here to die. At least we could have food and a roof and some semblance of a life in Egypt. It's a logical conclusion, isn't it? And you know, I wonder, did some of these Egyptians think to themselves, we don't know, it doesn't say this into the term, sorry, uh, Israelites, did they think to themselves, you know what, what if I just wandered over there to the enemy lines and said, put me back in my cage? And I wonder. Picks up in Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord your God will bring you today. The Egyptians, you, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So then God calls Moses to raise up his staff and the water parts. The Israelites go through safely and the Egyptian army is crushed behind them. It wasn't about their strength or effort. There was nothing magical about Moses' staff. They were to be still in God's presence and his strength and might would be revealed on their behalf. So some of you have been following along during this message, hopefully most of you, uh, and you're saying to yourself right now, hold on, Chris, didn't you just say that God honors motion, movement, obedience? Then why is he telling the Israelites to be still? Notice what kind of still is being called on here. It's the motion kind of stillness. In Exodus 14, verse 15, it says this, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. So God tells Moses, 
what are you guys waiting for? Move. And he was calling them to, to the stillness of God, the, 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 uh, uh, the stillness before God that all saints are required to walk in. The peace that transcends all knowledge and understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We move forward with that mentality, with that heart, that regardless of our circumstances, no matter how hard they may seem, we have a heart that's, that's fixed and focused on Jesus. And so we are, our minds and our hearts are fixed in his presence, but our feet are moving towards him. We see this all through the Bible, again with Abraham, who was called to go to the promised land when he didn't know where he was going. And uh, what looked like sure death became life more abundant than he could have ever imagined. Peter had to get out of the boat when he faced drowning to see the Lord's provision, and even more so when he had to face the fact that he was a hypocrite and had betrayed his Lord and Savior. And he found grace in his repentance. Most importantly, Jesus suffered along the path to obedience, it says, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, speaking of Jesus, it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, we would be wise to note that this isn't saying that Jesus was imperfect and became perfect through his suffering. It was saying that rather that Jesus' perfect life included suffering along the path of obedience. And even Jesus looked towards the cross as fully God, but also with emotions as fully man. It says in Luke 22, verse 22, Jesus speaking here, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, not, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus, while in the Garden of Gethsemane, awaiting his torturous death, experiences struggle on the path to obedience. But it brought about glory. We read about his glory accomplished on the cross in Philippians 2, verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And it came out of his humility. He didn't shrink back from the cost of his love for us. He obeyed unto death that we might be forgiven of our sins. He conquered death through the resurrection that we might experience the resurrected life in him, that we might experience joy in him. We obey like the widow, like Abraham, like Moses, like Peter, through grace by the power of faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ. This life we're called to is a life of motion. If you're stuck in discouragement, Jesus can get you out. And the step that you're to take may be talking to a friend who loves Jesus. If you're stuck in an addiction cycle, you can cry out to another person who you know cares about you and cares about the things of God, and you can take a step out. If you know that your heart is cold towards the lost people, towards lost people, you can get together with someone who, who loves the Lord and who loves reaching out to people 
And you can maybe go out to campus with them and, and reach out to people and watch God ignite your heart. Step out. That's where healing is found. If we stay stagnant, if we stay stationary in our Christian life, what happens is we become closet agnostics. That is, we sit in a chair on Sunday night and we maybe go to a home group every week, but we wonder, is Jesus Christ really our number one resource in life? Is he real? Can he actually heal me? Can he actually empower me to do these things that I know are on my heart, but that I've been ignoring because I'm too afraid to step out? We don't experience Jesus sitting on the sidelines. In God's kingdom, everybody's a starter. And he wants us in the game. We want to be like Paul who said, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. We don't know this, this strain that works in us through the power of Jesus in us if we're not in motion. We don't experience the power of the resurrected Christ in us unless we're in motion. Where is he calling you to step out with a still heart? Where is he calling you tonight? There's a gauntlet that we're all engaged in, whether we acknowledge it or not. There's a spiritual battle between stewardship and ownership. Are you, am I, ready to let go? Let go of ownership and say, God, you're in control. You own it all. And you own this garbage in my life. You own... Uh, uh, you already paid for it on the, on the cross and you've removed it from me as far as the east is from the west. You're for me. You're crazy about me. Uh, you, it says in Hebrews that he lives to make intercession for us. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's actively pursuing us. And tonight, he wants you and he wants me to experience the joy of stewardship and to let go. So there might be specific ways tonight that you're called to let go and let go of ownership and pursue stewardship. Again, there might be uh, uh, things of the heart that are holding you back. There might be uh, strongholds that are keeping you from stepping out in ministry in ways that God's calling you to. I want to encourage you to take advantage of our prayer team or uh, uh, maybe take advantage of someone that, you're, that you know here who loves Jesus that you can pray with. So let's, uh, let's do... Let's let the Lord do some work on us now, guys. Let's pray. Lord, we open this time up. We understand that this is why we're here. We're not here to just listen to a message and learn more stuff. Lord, we're here to learn more stuff and then see you ignited in our soul. Lord, we understand that this teaching is just the fuse and Holy Spirit, we ask you to light it. We ask you to light it in us. We open up our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, we don't want to be owners. We want to be stewards. And Holy Spirit, we need you to bring us conviction and the power and the desire to do what pleases you. So please, reveal to us our hearts. We don't even know our own hearts. Reveal our hearts to us. Show us where we've strayed and help us to come back to our first love, Lord, please. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Again, please take advantage of the prayer team. God bless you guys.